Hi, everybody. Welcome to Talk Nurses After Dark. I'm Father Tony. Jonathan Stewart is somewhere in Canada. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Father Tony. And we have joining us, uh, if you already watched the video show, you already know, uh, James McGrath from Butler University, who is talking to us about the historical Jesus. And so uh, thank you, James, for joining us once again. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure. So uh, in the video show, we talked about what the idea of the historical Jesus might look like and, uh, you know, some various arguments that, uh, um, that are used to, to perpetuate that uh, story. I'm saying this in a terribly awkward way, but here we go anyway. Um, we talked a little bit about how the crucifixion uh, is a good, uh, a good indicator that the Christians probably didn't make up Jesus because the crucifixion is contrary to the message that they were uh, initially trying to spread. And I, I found that to be pretty, pretty interesting. Um, Let's, uh, let's expand on that a little bit. The, 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 the common, one of the common mythicist arguments is that um, you don't have scholars who are actually studying uh, the uh, concept of a mythical Jesus because the church funds all of the uh, New Testament research. Is that true? It is not. <laughs> Okay. Uh, you don't seem very surprised. By I'm not. That. No. It might have been you a leading know, question. Well, I have, I, I have the most leading questions I've, <laughs> I've, we've ever had for any show this time. I, I know you guys have like 35 questions for me, so I mean, I could just leave it at no. And we can move on. <laughs> but it's interesting. I, you're, you work with Gnostic literature, and so you know, you know what a, a decent revelation sounds like, and so clearly you recognize that that was not one of them. <laughs> but it it was the case, you know, historically that many universities had religious roots, were founded by, you know, in most cases, Christian churches. Uh, that's true of Harvard and University of Chicago. Uh, but those places don't have religious affiliations any longer. Mm -hmm. uh, I teach at an institution which is secular. It had a connection with a particular denomination when it was founded, and it outgrew that. Mm -hmm. And so... There certainly is uh, what we might call sectarian um, or denominational kinds of um, scholarship, and sometimes it blends into apologetics, that is offered you know, at seminaries, at religiously affiliated schools. Uh, but not even all religiously affiliated schools reject mainstream historical methods. Mm -hmm. But there are enough secular universities around now that you know, the, the pressure is off in a lot of ways. And the clearest evidence of that is, in fact, what people have published about the historical figure of Jesus. Most conservative Christians, and even a lot of liberal Christians, don't like what historians have to say about Jesus. Right? <laughs> mm -hmm. And so if we are, um, you know, if we're in the pocket of, you know, big church, you know, that's funding all of this and trying to get, then we're, you know, they're, they're going to, defund us at some point and, you know, <laughs> put out hits on all of us, presumably, because the conclusion of historians has consistently been that Jesus didn't claim he was God, that he was a first century um, rabbi, itinerant uh, exorcist and healer, faith healer, something like that. Uh, at the very least, his followers thought he was the Messiah. Maybe he did as well. And he expected the kingdom of God, the end of the world, to dawn within the lifetime of his hearers, mm -hmm. and he was wrong. Mm -hmm. And 
even liberal Christians don't always know what to do with that. Right? <laughs> and so, yeah, that's not that's not where our, the funding for our research comes from at all. Uh, that anyone would find that plausible suggests to me that uh, they don't know the church, they don't know what the historians are saying, they don't know the academy, they don't know universities. So where do you think they, they could possibly be getting this information? Do you think it could be image memes on Facebook? <laughs> maybe, just maybe. Uh, that's a possibility. Yeah. Uh, same, the, it's yeah. interesting. I think they're getting them from the same kinds of sources with the same quality of information that uh, a lot of conservative Christians on the Internet are getting their information, right? From memes, from uh, people who speak in vitriolic terms about uh, that enemy over there that is mm -hmm. irrational and refuses to accept the truth. And the way they're mirror images of each other uh, in the source of information, in the rhetoric used, in the dogmatism, is fascinating. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, let's get into some of those specifics uh, of the things that people, uh, the mythicists say. Um, one of them, I think one that comes around most often, uh, is that the stories told about Jesus uh, bear a striking resemblance to stories told about other religious figures in other traditions. Uh, you know, the dying and rising god-man of, uh, of Horus, for example, kind of Osiris, kind of uh, Horus, the, uh, you know, all these kind of weird, stretchy connections uh, <laughs> that people make. Um, but you have to admit there are some similarities that you just can't uh, you can't throw away very easily. Um, how do how, how do you or rather let's say which of those kind of mythology arguments uh, do you do you like? Do you, are there any uh, stories about Jesus that you think yeah maybe they did rip that off from older traditions? Uh, well, there certainly is a very real possibility that stories about Jesus have been uh, ripped off or invented from older traditions because the Jewish framework and the intended audience that is trying to be persuaded in our uh, earliest Christian literature is um, first and foremost Jewish and even when someone like Paul is reaching out to non-Jews he's trying to bring them into the uh, the tree as it were, he graft them in to use his own image mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> into Israel and he's letting go of some of the requirements like circumcision and things of that sort. But ultimately, he's trying to make them part of a people of God that is defined in terms that stem from Judaism. Mm -hmm. And so if we're going to look for places where Christians are taking the historical figure of Jesus and inventing stories and filling in the gaps, the typology that's plausible in those sorts of cases is largely from the Jewish scriptures rather than from uh, Canaanite mythology or Greco-Roman tradition or other things like that. <clears throat> and when it comes to those kinds of things, it's not surprising that Christians in a time before uh, widespread literacy, media reporting, no opportunity to do the kind of thing we're doing here and record someone's actual words mm -hmm. so you can listen to them and get exactly what they said exactly right. Mm -hmm. uh, none of that was possible. And so there's no surprise that the early Christians who believed that Jesus uh, fit typologies in the Jewish scriptures turned to those scriptures and used them to fill in the story in ways that they needed to if they were going to tell the story of Jesus. 
when it comes to figures, when it comes to figures, you know, like Horus and Osiris and things like that, the similarities tend to either be very vague or to be partial, right? So, you know, a figure dies and rises again because that god was connected with, you know, the cycle of the seasons and so the death and rebirth and things like that. And I'll come back to how the Jewish idea of resurrection that we're talking about in the case of what early Christians thought about Jesus is different. Mm -hmm. But some of the things that you'll see on the internet memes, uh, some of them relate to holidays that were defined much later, but some of them simply don't seem to be true right. in any of the sources that we have about figures like Horus or Osiris. And when you ask for primary sources that document these claims, you know, that, you know, he's baptized by um, Anup the baptizer or things like that. <laughs> it's like, um, uh, sorry, I can't seem to quite track that down, but I know it's there. Mm -hmm. And it's born of a be, virgin. No, not really. Uh, it's like, yeah, well, you know, if you have your phallus replaced by an artificial one, does that <laughs> count as a virginal concept? I'm going to say no. <laughs> but, but, yeah, what Christians were claiming about Jesus and the resurrection related to a widespread Jewish view of the afterlife, right? And so this wasn't something unique to a mythical figure in their view. This was something that they believed would happen to all historical human beings. And so the very fact that they say this about Jesus, far from being an argument for mythicism, shows that they believe that Jesus is the first human being to undergo a process that they hope all human beings will undergo mm -hmm. in at the end of time. Mm -hmm. And to take a Gnostic point of view that we hope that all human beings will undergo in this lifetime. <laughs> yeah, well, the Gnostic hope for, you know, um, escape from the material world, right, rather than rising into a, a body that, you know, why would you want to do that, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting, that's a whole other issue we could discuss in interesting ways. But precisely because of a negative view of the material world, you get you know, this phenomenon that's much more widespread than Gnosticism, but overlaps at least in part with it of um, what's known as docetism. Mm -hmm. The idea that you know, Jesus is not a, a flesh and blood being, that he doesn't really suffer. Mm -hmm. And you get lots of variations of this, some of which there is a real historical, um, physical Jesus, but the Christ, the spiritual entity that was connected with him during his lifetime leaves before the before the crucifixion mm -hmm. and oftentimes appears above laughing at the human beings who foolishly think they're crucifying him. Yeah, we call that the uh, Jesus never pooped theory. Yeah, that sort of thing. Right, exactly. But what's interesting is that even those who hold those views, right, our ancient sources, right, they're not mythicists, right? right? They're not people who claim that there never was a figure of Jesus that appeared in human history on the historical scene, as it were. There are people who are dealing with earlier traditions that claim there was such a figure and trying to avoid having the divine that's associated with him suffer and in other ways be connected with the negative aspects of material existence. Mm -hmm. Right. So just to go back and to, to clarify some of your earlier points, so so when when we're drawing on mythology uh, to to fill in the Jesus story, the, a, a better example instead of looking to Horus or Adonis would be um, 
uh, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the, right after the Christmas story, Herod goes to to kill all the the newborn babies, right? Which is mm -hmm. an awful a lot like the Moses story, where right. Pharaoh goes and, yeah. and kills all the firstborns. Mm -hmm. Moses escapes. Jesus escapes. Perhaps the early Christians uh, were drawing on that Moses story to create that story. Would that yeah. be a good example? It's a great example. I wouldn't even be as cautious as you are and say perhaps. I mean, I think they were. That's what they were doing, right? That's yeah. a story we only get in the Gospel of Matthew, and the typology is is very strong, and it runs throughout the Gospel, right? So the teaching of Jesus later on is on a mountain and is directly contrasted and compared with things that were attributed to Moses, right? Whether it was the law that Moses was supposed to have received and so ultimately God's law or things like that. Uh, but, you know, there's a, a comparison going on with Moses that goes beyond those infancy stories. And those infancy stories do seem to have been invented in order to present Jesus as, in essence, a new Moses. Mm -hmm. And as if we Moses look at... Moses raised up the bronze serpent in the desert, so too shall the Son of Man be lifted <laughs> up, right? Well, there's John, yep. uh, working John into it. <laughs> yeah. But what's interesting is I, these kinds of... Um, supernatural infancy stories mm -hmm. are a common feature in ancient biography, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's nothing in this that's particularly surprising, you know, in relation to the possibility that Jesus was a historical figure, right? And so right. that's one of the things to mention. The other is that it's mainstream scholarship which has pointed out for a very long time that there are stories which are essentially scripture turned into history about Jesus in order or into story about Jesus. But what happens is that you know, there have been some folks like um, Thomas Brody who've tried to make the case that every single story in the Gospels can be explained in those terms. Mm. And in order to get there, oftentimes he has to say, well, here, you know, borrow this word from this text and here borrow this word from the... And ultimately it seems uh, implausible as an explanation for how the text came about to most scholars. Right. So the word the word and is in this book in the Hebrew Bible. So therefore the story was borrowed. And uh, I, I know we still have 56 or 7 questions to get through, but I just want to briefly go back to say Jesus and Horus. So so you were saying that that the comparisons are either like because this is a popular internet meme. I'm on Facebook a lot, way too much. So <laughs> I see the Jesus, the Jesus Horus meme go around. So and then they have like a point-to-point -point comparison between the two. But but you're basically saying that the comparisons that are relatively accurate or could be sourced. The, the comparisons that could be sourced are a big stretch. So for instance, Jesus was born of a virgin, but Horus was born of Osiris's reattached penis, so therefore he is a virgin. So that's that's a stretch. And some of the other comparisons just aren't there in the original sources. Yeah, well I think I think we can bypass what could be a very long, complicated <laughs> and really ineffectual discussion, right? Because I don't think there's anything that I could say, right? I can say fact check, right? Look up these things, yeah. see if you can trace them back to reliable sources, which doesn't mean uh, something that just happens to be in a, a book, right? But the mm. primary sources, and then read those primary sources and see what they say. But unless you actually know those sources in detail, there's no way, you know, I can show you large sections, let's say, of the 
you know, of you know what's often known collectively as the Egyptian Book of the Dead or Books mm -hmm. of the Dead, and say, look, here we don't find that, here we don't find that, and your listeners will just think, okay, but in the rest of the pages that he didn't have time to show, it must be there, right? So right. I think the only thing I can say is, on the one hand, go look for yourself, fact check these mm -hmm. claims, right? A lot of the people who promulgate and propagate these internet memes claim to be free thinkers and yet they never fact check these things and so please go do that do that live up to your name at this point but i think the key point to remember is that we have throughout let's say greco-roman literature that's you know since jesus is situated in the roman era that's a good point of comparison to look at and when kingly claims are made about figures they often are depicted in language that's borrowed straight from the gods, right? right. Uh, they're depicted in statues and coins as though they were divine figures, and sometimes specific divine figures, right, with parallels highlighted. And so even if we have Christians par pointing out parallels, even if we had that in our earliest sources, and even if all the Horus sources said what the internet memes claim, that wouldn't necessarily indicate that there wasn't a historical Jesus. It would... It's the mode, sorry to interrupt, it's the mode yeah, that sure. people think in. It's the, it's the language they speak. Yeah. For, for and, talk about kingly claims. Yeah, and so the question is, do we have any reason to think that this comparison to Horus, if it's there, and you know, I really don't think it is to any you know, significant extent, but if it were, then the question would be, is, are these people borrowing from Horus and applying that language to a figure in order to say that he's divine and important and other things? Or are they creating something completely new that is not based on a historical figure, right? So parallels don't demonstrate ahistoricity, right? And that's, I think, I think that leads to an important point that isn't made often enough about things like, you know, Richard Carrier's attempt to collectively assess the probability of a historical Jesus and, you know, it, each uh, point in his calculation either um, has the potential to enhance or reduce the historicity, right? Mm -hmm. If we if we had a figure, you know, let's say you know go back to you know Romulus and Remus or people like that, right? Let's say that we had some artifact or some text that gave historians a good reason to think that the city of Rome really was founded by two brothers by those names then what historians would say is that they wouldn't say, well, but we have all this later mythology, therefore we should conclude that you know, this inscription doesn't show you as historical or something like that. They would say, all the rest of the stuff is garbage and is useless and is ahistorical. And it's ahistorical stuff about, you know, this takes two names of historical figures, right? Mm. And so you could show that, let's say, everything but, you know, the crucifixion and the connection with Nazareth and some other you know, inconvenient details are not historical. And what that would show us is that a lot of not historical stuff grew up around this historical figure fairly quickly, right? right. And so it doesn't work that you know, when you get lots of things, you, know, you get lots of legends, get lots of myths growing up around a figure, then it allows you to lessen the likelihood of their probability, the probability of their historicity. Hmm. Right. So like L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, like he, Scientologists are going to tell you lots of amazing stories about him, 
uh, miraculous stories, but that doesn't mean he wasn't real. Uh, <laughs> is my go is would be a good example, uh, just because there, there or there might be parallels between L. Ron Hubbard and other religious leaders or miracle stories about him or inscriptions about him. Sure, and if all that survived, you know, of our early sources were Scientologist sources, then future historians might look back and say, we're not confident relying on these sources in detail. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. There would still be that argument that's similar to the point made about the crucifixion, right? Where we find, if we find Scientologist sources trying to deal with something and saying, you know, you may have heard this, but in fact, we have a nice explanation for why you shouldn't view L. Ron Hubbard negatively because of that then we'd probably think that there, maybe we have a snippet of historical information, right? Historians mm. don't always use the terminology that um, sometimes has come to be adopted in New Testament studies. Uh, New Testament studies, precisely because Jesus is such a figure of interest and dispute, historians working on the figure of Jesus have tried to be more skeptical than historians sometimes are with other sources. And so came up with these criteria of authenticity and things like that, some of which are very problematic, but some of them are simply a way of summing up very widely used historical reasoning. And one of those is the argument from embarrassment, which doesn't mean mm -hmm. if something was, you know, there was, again, a, a cartoon that was dealing with the embarrassment thing. It was the Saturday morning breakfast cereal mm -hmm. uh, dealing with that. It doesn't mean that, you know, automatically if you're, you find something that, makes you feel embarrassed or might have made an author feel embarrassed, then therefore we know it's true. But when we're dealing with figures, we're dealing with certain kinds of claims, and we analyze them historically, and we find people making claims about figures or about details in their own life or things like that, that they're unlikely to have made up, then historians regularly think that those things are more likely to be historical than ahistorical, all other things being equal. Mm -hmm. So here comes a question I've been waiting to ask, uh, actually not since the beginning of the podcast, but since the beginning of the show. So uh, as already stated, I spend way too much time on Facebook. Uh, there's, there's two very popular memes that go around that are shared by friends of mine, people I don't like, people I'm all right with, total strangers, um, that say that, uh, that Christmas, and you'll see them every year, it's just a, a Christian rebranding of the pagan birth of the sun solstice holiday. And Easter was just last week. Easter is actually Ishtar's day. So if the two most important Christian holidays, you know, the, the birth and the death and resurrection of Jesus are stolen whole hawk from uh, previous myths, doesn't this prove that, that there was no historical Jesus? No. Okay, next question. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know we don't have that much time, so I thought I'd I don't see. know. Yeah. Um, for those who might want a slightly longer answer, right, there's nothing in our earliest sources that, you know, uses the term Easter, right? And it's connected with Passover. And in most languages, you know, the term for Easter is connected to the Jewish term for Passover in some way. Right. I, I live in a French-speaking city, so, you know, here it's, it's basically Passover, Passover. Right. And yeah. December 25th is the date of the birth of Jesus is not in our earliest sources either. And so... If people borrowed from myth, borrowed from existing holidays in order to celebrate this figure, again, you, you can't retroactively add stuff to a historical figure and thereby discount their historicity. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not, that's not how 
a study of the evidence works. I mean, it's, it's bizarre. It's th almost the opposite of, you know, the equally bizarre um, conservative Christian claim that we have this many manuscripts of the New Testament, therefore it's authentic, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, if, th if that worked, I could get my students semester after semester to make additional copies, right? And then the number would grow and it would be even more authentic. But that's, those late copies are irrelevant, right? And so the problem is that a lot of apologists, you know, both for Christianity and against Christianity, are looking at these questions in an all or nothing way and are ignoring the distinctions historians make between early sources and what they say and what later sources have added. Mm. The right. Can you? Oh, sorry to interrupt, Father. And uh, and um, I was just wondering, James, if you could say all that again, but in a way that could fit on an image meme that we can share. <laughs> yeah. sorry, sorry, Father. Go go ahead. I'll I'll, I'll try and come up with that. Um, we'll, okay. we'll work on that. Yeah. It, yeah. It's. Uh, the Easter Ishtar thing bothers me to no end because of the, the English language part of it. You know, I, I think that we in uh, the English-speaking West uh, think that the world revolves around us a little bit too much. And I think this is an example of that, uh, that you know, the, the, the idea that um, somebody in uh, Palestine 2,000 years ago somehow knew what the word would be called, uh, you know, in England, <laughs> uh, several hundred years later. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, it's a bit like the people who make much of, you know, it's like the rising of the sun, S-U-N, and the rising of the sun, S-O-N. Right. It's great. You've got a pun in English, but it doesn't exactly work for the right. And there are so many great puns in the in the original languages. There's so many great Greek puns throughout all of the sources, and and uh, you know that. That could be that, that are as much fun, if not more fun. But uh, anyway, uh, what I what I'd like to do actually is to throw in a little bit of Gnosticism here, because ostensibly this is a show about Gnosticism. So let's let's at least give it some lip service. Um, the we talked about. Oh, I think we're getting Jonathan back. We need to remember to turn sounds off on that uh, computer. <laughs> it's going in my ear, and I'm told that you aren't able to hear it through the magic of technology, but um, good story. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the, um, there, you mentioned uh, docetism earlier, and, uh, and, and that's a uh, not, not, I, guess, I wouldn't say common uh, trope of Gnosticism, but a lot of the uh, ancient Gnostics certainly did have uh, docetic point of view, and I think even uh, even in Islam, uh, that that uh, that shows up in the Quran, and uh, you know Jesus wasn't actually crucified; that somebody mm -hmm. else took his place. Um, so there is a concept uh, in Gnosticism of a Christ that can be, and is in a lot of in a lot of cases, separate from the person Jesus. Um, and you mentioned earlier that, that in, in some Gnostic schools, the, the figure of the Christ descended on Jesus at his baptism. Um, sometimes when I'm talking to people about, uh, about this, about whether or not you know, we as the Joanite Church believe in historical Jesus, um, we don't tend to uh, make a big deal about it one way or the other because uh, for us, the ideas, um, the, the concept of the cosmic Christ, uh, if you want to use that term, is um, almost more important than whether or not there was an actual physical Jesus walking around in the desert 2,000 years ago. Um, 
Yeah, and I think that's probably why the Gospel of John, um, which is um, near and dear to me, that's what I did my doctoral research mm -hmm. on and have continued to be fascinated by the portrait of Jesus there. But one of the things that it says is that this word, this logos that became flesh in the human life of Jesus is the light that gives light to every human being that comes into the world. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it has this broader activity. Uh, it's, it's bigger than Jesus, basically. Mm -hmm. And while there's been a tendency in the Christian tradition to try to limit that word or that logos to Jesus, uh, there are things in the Gospel of John that suggest, well, that point in a different direction or pull in a different direction. And so it's not surprising that the Gospel of John was particularly popular among mm -hmm. uh, the Gnostics and that our earliest commentary on the Gospel of John is a Gnostic one. Yeah. It's, you know, the connections are there. Mm -hmm. um, but still fun to talk about the, <laughs> yeah. the arguments about historic Jesus. Yeah. Uh, we can, I can do some more connections with uh, Gnosticism and Docetism uh, that are relevant to the mythicist question. Yeah, let's do it. Because uh, one text that is really obscure and really hard to know what to do with and really rather idiosyncratic in its cosmology and in its statements and seems to be woven together from more than one source or and or the work of more than one author or both is a work known as the Ascension of Isaiah mm. or the martyr, Martyrdom and Ascension of Isaiah. And this composite work uh, includes a vision, you know, that, you know, the, uh, the heavenly sun, you know, uh, des descends from the highest heavens and according to one possible reading, makes it as far as the firmament, right? So the lowest level, level of the celestial realm where the malevolent forces tend to be uh, congregated. And Richard Carrier has made the case that this work reflects the view that Jesus, you know, or the, the heavenly sun descends only that far and goes no further, gets crucified in the heavens and then returns. Mm -hmm. And one thing that's missing from his treatment, and there's an article I wrote for the online periodical, uh, The Bible and Interpretation on this. Uh, it's called, Did Jesus Die in Outer Space? <laughs> uh, so it connects with my sci-fi interest, so I had to go yeah. there. But one thing that's common in a lot of Gnostic texts is this idea that, you know, and I should say much more broadly, I mean, you get it in apocalypticism, you get it in other places as well, but this idea that there are things that go on in the heavenly realm that parallel what happens on the earthly realm. Mm -hmm. And so most docetists didn't say that there was no historical Jesus. They said that the celestial Christ is distinct from this figure and that when this earthly figure is crucified, it doesn't touch the heavenly. Mm -hmm. uh, but otherwise, you know, they're moving in parallel and sometimes in synergy and conjunction with one another. And so a natural reading of the Ascension of Isaiah is that the heavenly Christ, you know, even if, and it's debatable whether that figure gets all the way to earth or not, but even apart from that, you know, if it views there as being some kind of celestial crucifixion, the most natural way of viewing that within the framework of what we know of early Christianity would be as that celestial crucifixion mirrors and is the heavenly correspondent to the earthly one. Mm -hmm. And so there too, I think that the attempt to take uh, Gnostic, uh, Docetistic, and other kinds of sources from ancient Christianity and try to get them to 
serve a mythicist agenda, really it's it's ideologically driven. It doesn't fit the things that we actually find in the sources themselves very well. Hmm. Jonathan, are you back now? Oh. I'm kind of back. It's uh, it's cutting in and out for me. Oh. Did you guys did you guys get through the, the seventy questions while I was away? Uh, with sixty five of them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Um, we, yeah, we, ta we talked about crucifying space Jesus, um, which I know is something that you were excited to talk about. Yeah. Um, so the, uh, I mean, we can go through each of these kind of interesting, <laughs> interesting, uh, mythicist arguments one by one, but <laughs> I, I think we really got to beat that to death. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, one, one thing I would say is that, yeah, there Several of the questions that you uh, mentioned wanting to ask often started with, well, I saw this on YouTube. Right. Or yeah. I saw this in an internet meme, right? And just as you know, one would say to you know, a young earth creationist that those sound bites are not even a close equivalent to the reams and reams of scholarly research on evolution, the same has to be said about history, mm -hmm. right? If you think that you can make an accurate judgment about a historical question without knowing the time period in detail, without knowing the sources, without knowing the relevant languages, without really having this kind of expertise, then you know, I think I think you're fooling yourself, really. You know? I, I don't know. Have you spent much time on the internet? Because that's kind of <laughs> what it is. <laughs> I'm aware of that. And I, I spend time on there. And you know, there, there are a number of scholars who blog, as I do. And one of the reasons we do that is precisely because sometimes people listen. Yeah. And it is possible to boil scholarship down, right? But when you boil something down to a popularized version, then it's often a lot easier to dismiss. Yeah. Right? And so... The soundbite in favor of evolution is something that it might be possible to poke holes in. And in fact, sometimes even well-meaning supporters of mainstream science have used arguments that actually turn out on closer examination to have been misguided. Mm -hmm. It's a bit like you know Galileo trying to make a case for the rotation of the Earth using the tides. Mm. And you know his opponents were like, yeah, it doesn't fit the evidence. And so it lessened the credibility of his case. And so... Sometimes, you know, pe there are things that have been boiled down from historicity. Sometimes people will talk about us being you know, absolutely sure or having proven or things like that. And proof is, is language that's appropriate to math, not to history. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we have evidence. And just as with evolution, so I'd say with the historical figure of Jesus, if somebody tells you there's no evidence, then they simply don't know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Right? They might want to make the case that the evidence doesn't allow you to draw a certain kind of conclusion, but that's different. You know, that requires discussion of the evidence, it requires nuance. And as we all know very well, the internet is often lacking in that. <laughs> that is true. As someone who publishes frequently on YouTube, I can... Uh... <laughs> and I appreciate that you, you, know, you bring scholars onto your show and talk about serious topics in serious ways. And you know, I'm not giving you, you know, I'm not reading from you know, a scholarly paper that goes into lots of detail and yeah. quotes the primary sources at length. Um, you, you, your audience would have stopped listening by now if I had done that. <laughs> but one of the things that's important to do from time to time is to emphasize that the sound bites 
of mainstream scholars are built on and based on tons and tons of research that's been done. And if you're not convinced, then ta start taking a look at that and start acquainting yourself with the actual detailed monographs and articles that explore the individual pieces of evidence. And you'll see that scholars have gone over these things with a fine-tooth comb mm -hmm. over the years, very, very skeptically. And the reason why most historians and scholars think there probably was a historical Jesus is because even when you bring out your skeptical toolbox, and as long as you're just not going to full denialist where, you know, because it's possible to doubt anything except your own existence, right? We know that. Uh, as somebody who has a blog that's called Exploring Our Matrix, right? Is the world real around us? You know, mm -hmm. it's possible to doubt. But if you're talking about reasonable doubt, and talking about following the evidence where it leads. People have gone skeptically over and over the details of our earliest sources, and some things seem more likely than not to be historical. Mm -hmm. And that's the heart of the reason why the consensus for there having been a historical Jesus is so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned earlier, the, the people who are sharing the mythicist point of view tend to, uh, tend to not be scholars themselves. Um, scholarship, uh, you know, academia in general can be hard to approach from from an outside point of view. Um, some of us, some of us are, are nerds, and we enjoy reading uh, dissertations and, <laughs> and scholarly papers and things. But it's they are written in a specific way, and they're, they're sometimes difficult to. There's a there's a high barrier to entry, I think. Uh, yeah. And I think I would say, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by the natural sciences, you know, physics and cosmology and things mm -hmm. like that. Uh, in fact, I'm looking forward to, we have this thing coming up at Butler University called Arts Fest, and uh, I'm going to be sitting down with a colleague of mine from physics and talking about time and space and mm -hmm. religion and stuff like that. But, you know, I mean, I could read up on physics. I could dabble. I could become, I could become persuaded that from my armchair perspective and my reading that Einstein was wrong or that, you know, I have this, you know, great theory that, you know, or most scientists are wrong about this or that. And I, I think I'm entitled to that opinion as an individual on the one hand, you know, freedom of speech, all that kind of stuff. On the other hand, I hope that I would be the first to acknowledge that if I think most scientists in a field are wrong and I'm not a scientist myself, <laughs> then I'm probably wrong. They're probably right. You know, and, logic, who, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think another thing that oftentimes the, the public doesn't get about scholarship is that, you know, the fact that a scholar has made a case for something doesn't mean it's right, mm -hmm. right? If it did, then a lot of contradictory things would all be true, right? Mm -hmm. um, including some of the claims of conservative Christians who've managed to get lots of things into print, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so you'll sometimes hear mythicists say that, you know, doesn't, doesn't the plethora, you know, the abundance of theories about who Jesus was indicate that there was no historical Jesus? Mm -hmm. And the answer is no, right? It's like, you know, why are there so many theories about you know, the origins of the cosmos and things like that? Uh, it's because, on the one hand, the evidence is not complete, and we don't have all the evidence we'd want to be able to give a simple, quick answer to certain questions. But on the other hand, when you're dealing with a vibrant field and a field in which people want to work and want to publish, you've got to try out new ideas. 
right? That's what scholars are paid to do. Mm -hmm. That's what we're expected to do. And some of the ideas that we floated, and which a handful of people have tried to make a case for and have enjoyed arguing for, have turned out to be have turned out to seem less likely to the majority of scholars than other things. And so the fact that something appears in print doesn't mean it's right. Um, there are mythicists who've published peer-reviewed articles, right? And I'm glad they have because I want to engage serious versions of mythicism rather than um, weak internet versions of mythicism, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I think it's a topic that deserves scholarly attention, but the fact that someone has published a viewpoint doesn't mean that that's persuasive. And so if you're in the general public, what you should be looking for is, is there a consensus about evolution, about the historical Jesus, about this or that question? Um, that's really where if if the scholars who, it's in their, our best interest to come up with something new, if we're agreeing about something, the evidence for that is probably pretty good. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, Oh, uh, I'm back. Hey, everybody, what I miss? I, I'm sad. I think I missed Jesus being crucified in outer space, but I'll listen to the show myself and then catch up. <laughs> do we have time? Do we have to wrap up, Father Tony? Or we got we some time. time to talk? Okay, James, I did want to ask about it, and hopefully you guys didn't cover it. Um, I did want to ask, because, uh, you know, like this is a show that's kind of disproving mythicists, and I, I put a lot of leading questions in there, but I wanted to, the Christians and the Gnostics were listening to know that, uh, you know, obviously I, I sympathize with, with, with the Jesus of faith, right? Obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm a Gnostic, and with the Jesus of myth, and what some people sometimes call the, the, the cosmic Christ, you know, and, and even Paul, he, he, he honestly doesn't write much about the Jesus of history. He, he is writing about this, uh, this supernatural figure. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, James, because I, mm -hmm. I, I know you also do blog about progressive Christianity, and, and I'm wondering, you know, I don't want to leave anybody in the dark or if they are comparing Jesus or inspired by the Jesus myth or comparing him to other myths to think that I'm, I'm somehow poo-pooing their... Uh, some of their religious beliefs. Does, does that, that's not really a question as long as, as well as a uh, long ramble, but hopefully you, you get to what <laughs> I was getting to. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm currently teaching a class um, at Butler on the historical figure of Jesus. Uh, I teach every, you know, two or three years. And one of the things I get students to do on the first day is ask them a question, who was Jesus? And then I get them to write down a bunch of keywords and short answers and then say what they are and I write them up on the board. And one thing that I, that exercise is designed to try to make clear is that a lot of them quickly want to jump to who is Jesus because they think of Jesus in the present tense right. as a figure that still exists, um, seated along the, you know at the right hand of God in heaven or however they think about him. And what we've been talking about today is the historical question, right? Mm -hmm. And the question of whether Jesus was the embodiment, incarnation, inspired by, empowered by, connected with, or otherwise associated with a celestial figure that existed before that, and whether he was exalted to heaven and essentially deified, whether the spiritual being that he was connected with during his life uh, left him before the crucifixion, uh, after, uh, has never left him, they're still united in some kind of celestial existence, all of those are possibilities which some Christians have adhered to at some point. And I'd say it's, there's a reasonable chance that you could find somebody who adheres to each of those views today. And those aren't historical questions. 
right? A historian can't tell you whether Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Mm -hmm. And one of the, that's very challenging sometimes for people of faith, precisely because if historical study can't tell you Jesus did miracles, and if even we were to allow history to tackle the resurrection, the best case scenario it would come up with might be, yeah, Jesus probably rose from the dead, right? Or something like that, which still seems kind of weak for most people of faith who are, <laughs> want to believe in the resurrection. And, you know, on what basis can you believe these things about the, you know, about the past if not, you know, if history can't give you the answers? And you can ask the same thing about the celestial Christ, right? Uh, if you believe in a second coming, or if you believe that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in heaven, um, is that something that NASA could look into? Right? Um, one of my favorite quotes, um, I think it was Keith Ward who pointed out that um, if you believe in a literal ascension of Jesus, as depicted in, you know, in Acts, then unless Jesus has achieved warp speed, he still hasn't left the Milky Way galaxy. <laughs> I think most people who think about heaven and the celestial realm have left behind an older cosmology that was popular in first century where um, heaven wasn't that far away, you yeah. know, the sky up there, and have transitioned to, you know, think of, you know, a different dimension or a different kind of existence, a different plane of existence. Historical study can't tell you about that. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think, on the one hand, there's any reason to feel that historical study uh, thoroughly negates, you know, theology and spirituality and things like that. And on the other hand, I don't think that theology and spirituality let you shortcut, you know, um, do a, a run around past the historical methods that we used to get at historical questions, right? So from a faith perspective, one might want to say that Jesus is, is right, not just was, but is more than the historical figure that historical investigation uncovers. But once you sever the link with the historical figure or try to use you know spiritual experiences let's say to say well i experienced jesus this way therefore the historical figure can't have been like that then i think you're uh, you're basically trying to import into the domain of history something that is not the kind of argument that historians work with mm -hmm. and and nor should it i mean there is a i think a really good argument for um sometimes just taking things on faith. There, if your spirituality, and again, speaking for myself only, and you'll hear the hardcore disclaimer credits at the end, um, if your faith is so tied up in understanding things literally, then I think that you're, I think you're working a little bit too hard. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I don't know whether, uh, you, you invited me on to talk about the historical Jesus, but yeah. since we've turned to faith, uh, I mean, I'd be happy to, uh, channel my inner or outer, I don't know, Paul Tillich, uh, but that's a theologian who I really appreciate mm -hmm. who wrote some important things about faith. And, you know, he defines faith as ultimate concern, right? So what your life is ultimately focused on. And I think that's an important possible definition because if your faith is, you know, taking things on faith in the sense of, you know, the evidence can't prove this or the evidence is against it, but I'm going to believe it anyway, uh, not only is that problematic, but it's setting you, it's setting you up to argue against historians and to argue against scientists and to argue against anyone who comes with evidence that's, you know, problematic. But if ultimately your quest is for God, for the divine, for spirit, for the cosmic Christ or any, any kind of Christ, and that quest is, you know, what's important to you, 
then taking a hard look at the evidence can actually be an act of faith, even mm. if that quest doesn't lead you where you hoped you might go or where you thought you might go. And so the critical investigation can actually be an expression of faith if we understand faith in a particular kind of way. Yeah, that's, that's really good. And, uh, and I think that's a fantastic place to end it. So uh, thank you once again, James, for joining us. And uh, we hope to have you back again soon. Check out the Exploring Our Matrix blog. We'll have links to that in the description. And, uh, you know, he, almost daily, I think there's something interesting posted there. Um, uh, pop culture, comics, uh, science fiction, and religion. And uh, if you like this show, there's no reason you wouldn't like that blog. So, so take a look. So thanks again, James, for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. All right. And uh, I think we're pretty good with news for the moment. I don't think we have anything exciting to report. Uh, but if you are, if you have not yet signed up to go to the Apostolic Joanite Church's conclave in May in the Boston area, uh, please do check that out. We're going to have Dr. Karen King, uh, speaking of scholars, talking to us about Gnosticism, uh, and we're gonna ha we're gonna pick her brain about all kinds of interesting things, and, and we're pretty excited about it. So if you're in the Boston area in May, May 12th through the 17th, or even just for the weekend. Uh, do come and check that out. You won't regret it. And you can find that on joanite.org slash conclave2016. That's J-O-H-A-N-N-I-T-E dot org and then conclave as, you, as it sounds. Uh, and uh, that's it. Jonathan, did I miss anything? I, I think you've got it all. So, um, yes. Uh, we will. Uh, people at home, please uh, take sound bites from these interviews and make them into Facebook memes. And then share. <laughs> That's true. Yes, <laughs> I expect Facebook memes by morning. Yeah. <laughs> so for those of you who are listening along at home, we'll see you next week. This has been a production of the Gnostic Wisdom Network. For more information about this and all of GWN's programming, please visit GnosticWisdom.net. The opinions expressed in this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of GWN, the Apostolic Joannite Church, or any other organization. This has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License and is brought to you by the generous support of our patrons. To support our programs and become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash gnostic. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot slash g-n-o-s-t-i-c. Thank you.